We are not against piety, but we are against pietism. Because the movement of pietism overemphasized what we could call one's heartfelt faith toward God. The engagement in religious duty in a very individualized, heartfelt way separated from doctrine. There wasn't an emphasis on doctrine and theology and getting things right biblically. There was an emphasis on how you lived your Christian life and what your experience was and your heartfelt devotion to God. This is Andrew Smith, pastor of Christ Reformed Community Church here in St. Johns County, Florida. I would like to extend to you an invitation to worship with us each Lord's Day at 1015 a.m. Our address is 161 Hampton Point Drive, Suite 2, St. Augustine, Florida, 32092. You can also access archived video versions of these same sermons on our Facebook page. Additionally, our sermons are broadcast live on Facebook every Sunday morning. Now, let's open God's Word and listen to the sermon for today's broadcast. Well, take your Bibles this morning and turn again with me to the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 7. And this morning we want to continue looking at verses 1 through 13. We started looking at this passage of Scripture last week and we want to finish it off here this morning. When you find your place there in Mark chapter 7, I want to ask you to stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. And I want to read this passage in its entirety, verses 1 through 13. Let us hear the word of God. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with hands that are defiled? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God, and you hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. This is God's word. Please be seated as we ask the Lord for his help. Father, it is easy to read this passage of Scripture and point our fingers at other people. It is easy to read this passage of Scripture and be highly critical of the scribes and Pharisees. They're easy targets because of their gross legalism and hypocrisy. But the question this morning um, is, how are we doing before you? What uh, is in our hearts? What sort of hypocrisy do we need to repent of? And so, Lord, we ask that uh, these scriptures would search our hearts as only they can do by the power of your Holy Spirit. 
Father, we pray that the preaching of your word would be accompanied by the power of your spirit, that you might sanctify your people, reprove us, convict us, draw us closer to Christ. Help us to see that Christ is enough for our salvation. Lord, that we aren't to try to work our way to heaven. And yet, even as your people, you call us to lives of holiness, that are true lives of holiness, not marked by hypocrisy. So Lord, help us to guard our hearts and guard our ways as we study this passage. Change us even more into the likeness of Christ. That's our prayer this morning. We pray these things in the blessed and strong name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. As we mentioned last week, uh, Mark chapter 7 is one of those passages in which the gospel writer, specifically here Mark, is giving to us a confrontation that Jesus is having with the religious leaders. You remember all the way back in Mark chapter 3, really at the height of their accusations toward Jesus was a charge that they leveled against Jesus that said uh, he had the power to perform all the miracles that he performed and all the signs that he performed But it was a type of power that didn't come from heaven. It was a type of power that came from hell. They literally accused Jesus of being possessed by unclean spirits, being possessed by demons, being possessed by devils with his ability to cast out demons themselves and his ability to heal sick that Jesus was operating under the power of Satan, that he had an unclean spirit within him. Well, here in Mark chapter 7, they're coming to Jesus to accuse him of defiling their religious rituals uh, because he and his disciples didn't wash their hands. And Jesus uh, turns around, reverses the tables, and confronts them, and he says uh, that their issue is is that they are the ones with unclean spirits. They are the ones with unclean hearts. They had a form of religion, but it was outward religion. They participated in the rituals and the rites and the ceremonies that God had prescribed to the nation of Israel, his people at that time. They participated in those things, they observed those things, but their hearts weren't engaged. And not only that, but they were really good at obeying certain portions of God's law and avoiding other portions. They were really good at pitting God's law against itself and really creating a whole class of people that we could call hypocrites, led by the scribes and the Pharisees. So Jesus confronts them, essentially regarding their legalism. Their legalism. Now there are many isms in the world today. There are many isms even within, quote-unquote, Christianity, or evangelicalism, as we could say, or church history. One of those isms is legalism, defined narrowly and and in the way that is best to understand legalism is to understand that legalism is anything that attaches something to faith, faith plus something equals salvation, faith plus obedience to the law, faith plus baptism, faith plus works equals salvation. Adding anything to the gospel is really legalism. Of course, Jesus deals with the legalism here, and he points out the tradition of the scribes and Pharisees. He mentions that tradition in verse 3, he mentions it in verse 8, he mentions it in verse 5. It is the tradition of the scribes and Pharisees which led to their legalism. As Christians, and in particular as Reformed people, we are not against tradition. 
Tradition is a very good thing. It is something to be valued. It is something that we naturally gravitate toward to do things a certain way um, according to a tradition or to a custom in and of itself is not a bad thing and in many ways is a very good thing. We are not against tradition, but we are against traditionalism. We are not against tradition, but we are against any sort of traditionalism that places tradition as equal to an authority as Scripture itself or even above authority. We believe in the sacraments. We observe the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supplement. We love the sacraments. But we are not sacramentalists because the sacramentalists overemphasizes the sacraments and says that by participating and observing the sacraments, you are receiving salvation, which is adding to faith a work, baptism, or eating of the Lord's Supper. We are not against tradition. We're against traditionalism. We are not against the sacraments. Um, We are against sacramentalism. There was a movement in the... um, 17th century, it was a Lutheran movement called pietism. Pietism. Philip Jacob Spiner was one of the proponents of this movement. It followed on the heels of the Protestant Reformation with all of this talk about justification by faith alone, all of these writings like the Institutes of the Christian Religion by John Calvin, all of these theological tomes, all of this doctrinal expository preaching and Philip Jacob Spiner and these Lutherans created this movement called pietism. Now, as Christians, we are not against piety. As a matter of fact, uh, piety was one of John Calvin's favorite words. Piety just refers to spirituality or one's devotion to God. We are not against piety, but we are against pietism because the movement of pietism overemphasized what we could call one's heartfelt faith toward God. The engagement in religious duty in a very individualized, heartfelt way separated from doctrine. There wasn't an emphasis on doctrine and theology and getting things right biblically. There was an emphasis on how you lived your Christian life and what your experience was and your heartfelt devotion to God. Out of that pietism was a movement that faced it head-on, which we call Puritanism. Puritanism was a movement that wanted to essentially make the Church of England, the state church in England, a more pure church. Their forefathers were Calvinists, specifically John Knox, who trained under John Calvin in Geneva. And the Puritans were opposing pietism. Puritanism wanted to be a pure church, but they wanted to define purity according to doctrinal standards because they said that if you got doctrine right, then you would get duty right. If you properly defined belief and emphasized theology, you would get the religious experience right. They were for what we might call doctrinal experientialism. And that is really what this church stands upon. We are a church that stands upon the shoulders of the Puritans. In our day, there's really not a lot of talk about pietism and puritanism. There's really talk among many circles regarding biblicism. And biblicism sounds like a really, really noble sort of position to have because who would not want to revere the Bible as the Word of God? But I want you to understand this morning that biblicism flows out of pietism. 
We as Christians believe in sola scriptura. We believe in scripture alone as our final authority. The word sola meaning alone, scripture alone. Biblicism is solo scripture. Not sola alone, but solo. It's the idea that all I need is my Bible. I don't need teachers. I don't need confessions. I don't need church history. All I need is my Bible and me and the Holy Spirit, and I'll just be fine. Leave me alone. That is a rigid sort of biblicism. We, uh, we believe in confessionalism. We believe that like the Puritans and the continental reformers that went before us, Scripture alone is our final authority. We believe in sola scriptura, but we are not solo scripturists. Because we understand the value of history, we understand that God throughout time has gifted certain men Paul is clear uh, in his epistles that some men are gifted with the office of pastor and teacher, and these men are to teach the word of God in the church of God. Churches are to be led by shepherds and elders and pastors and teachers who help God's people understand the word of God. What biblicists don't understand is that the Holy Spirit that works in their pastor's life to help them understand Scripture is the same Holy Spirit that worked throughout church history in any number of men who are now dead, but their writings still exist. And that's why this church is for the Bible. It's against biblicism. It is a confessional church. So there are all sorts of isms, and it's important to define what these isms are and what these isms stand for. But in our present passage, Jesus is dealing with legalism. And he is dealing with traditionalism. He is dealing with a certain religion that takes just enough of the Bible, but then perverts it and twists it to its own destruction, which ultimately leads to a life of hypocrisy. And so as we look at this passage, we've seen that the religious leaders are confronting Jesus and uh, he confronts them right back. This whole scene, verses 1 through 13, uh, is marked by six gripping moments. We f- saw, first of all, from verses 1 and 2, what we called the petty delegation. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. What is going on here is that the Pharisees who lived on the province of Galilee called upon the high-ranking Pharisees and scribes who resided in Jerusalem in the province of Judea, probably members of the Sanhedrin itself. This sort of religious commission, really this delegation sent from the higher-ups of Judaism to travel to Galilee where Jesus was conducting his ministry and to confront him because he and his disciples ate, as verse 2 says, with hands that were unwashed, that is, hands that were defiled. Jesus and his disciples did not follow the strict man-made traditions of ritualistic washings. That is what is being described here. When you go back and read the Old Testament, you find that Jesus was not violating Scripture. The disciples were not violating Scripture because um, Scripture was clear when you were to wash your hands. If you touched, for instance, a dead body, you were considered unclean. You needed to wash your hands. If a woman was going through her menstrual cycle, she had to take a, a bath in order to cleanse herself. But outside of those 
two sort of scenarios. There really weren't any laws that said you had to constantly wash yourself and cleanse yourself. But uh, the scribes and Pharisees were obsessed, we could say, with baptism. They overemphasized baptism. They overemphasized cleanliness. They overemphasized those even those laws that God had laid down, which were signs and symbols of the fact that God's people needed to be spiritually cleansed. They overemphasized the symbol baptism or cleanliness over the thing itself, and that was inward purity. Inwardly, they were filthy. Outwardly, they were clean. And here they come to Jesus and the disciples, this sort of petty delegation to quibble with him over this petty matter of Jesus not washing his hands before he ate a meal, which was not in violation of the law of God. That took us then to what we called the parenthetical explanation. The petty delegation led us to the parenthetical explanation. Verse 3, for the Pharisees, Mark says, and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. That's what it meant to wash your hands properly, not following the Bible, according to the scribes and Pharisees, but following their traditions. Mark lays it out, verse 4, and when they come from the marketplace especially, they do not eat unless they wash. Why is that? Because there were Gentiles and Samaritans in the marketplace and you might accidentally brush up against one and become unclean and many other traditions notice verse 4 Mark says they observe such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches I mean they even hosed off and cleansed and poured water over the dining couches all the things they ate out of and ate with they cleansed they baptized literally baptismos is the word that is used here in the Greek which means they poured water over all of these utensils and over all of the dining couches. They poured water over their hands with their fingertips facing up. They poured water over their hands with their fingertips facing down. They poured water over their hands as they cleansed their hands by rubbing one fist into the palms of their hands. Mark is giving a parenthetical explanation because most of his readers are Greeks. They're Gentiles. They don't understand the customs of the Jews. They don't understand why it is that the religious leaders are attacking Jesus and the disciples this way. And so Mark wants to make it very clear. Understand this petty delegation is not legitimate. It's based upon customs and the traditions of man. Mark wants Gentile readers to understand that. Well, that petty delegation and parenthetical explanation then led in verse 4 to the pathetic interrogation. Mark says, and the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? Notice your Bibles carefully. They are not arguing chapter and verse. They're arguing according to the tradition of the elders. Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? They didn't have scripture on their side. They don't even bother quoting scripture. They quoted and actually just didn't even quote. They just pointed to the precedent of the tradition of the elders as if that could never be questioned. That was untouchable. You could never question what the elders determined. You could never question what the scribes determined. You could never question what the Pharisees determined. They were a corrupt group of people. They were power hungry. You never questioned them. They were prideful. They were arrogant. What audacity. To point here to the traditions of man. This was a pathetic interrogation. If you're going to interrogate someone, why don't you use scripture? 
Why don't you challenge them according to the standards of Scripture instead of your own petty, pathetic standards? That's exactly what the religious establishment was doing. And that takes us now to the tables really being reversed because while they quoted the tradition of the scribes and elders, Jesus is going to quote Scripture. So we move from the petty delegation and parenthetical explanation and pathetic interrogation to the pointed quotation, verses 6 and 7. And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of man. Jesus here is quoting Isaiah chapter 29 and verse 13. He is saying, notice again in verse 6, well did Isaiah prophesy of you. Jesus is not saying that when Isaiah gave his prophecy in Isaiah chapter 29 that Isaiah was thinking of the scribes and Pharisees. Isaiah had no clue who the scribes and Pharisees were. They didn't exist in his day. Isaiah didn't know about them. But what Jesus is saying is that what Isaiah wrote about concerning the people of his own day had a transcendent application to the people of Jesus's day and in essence what Isaiah was saying was prophetic because what was happening in Isaiah's day was also happening in Jesus day and you could argue maybe even in a worse way there was a timeless prophetic principle to what Isaiah was saying and so Jesus says notice your Bibles that well did Isaiah prophesy of you that you are what hypocrites You're hypocrites. You're hypocrites just like those in Isaiah's day. How so? Well, he defines hypocrites according to Isaiah. They are this people, notice verse 6, that honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Put it simply, they were clean on the outside, paying homage to God with their mouths, but they were dirty on the inside, spiritually unclean. They had no fellowship with God. Outwardly, they claimed to honor God with their lips, but inwardly, they were far from knowing God. Two parts of the body representing true religion and false religion. The lips representing fake lies. The heart representing the core of what was true about a person. If you turn over with me to Matthew chapter 23, we see some of what many people call the hard sayings of Jesus the woes that he pronounces upon the scribes and the Pharisees. And he uses the same sort of language of, okay, you want to talk about how I'm somehow unclean because I don't wash my hands before my meal? Let's talk about your uncleanliness. He says in verse 27, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. There's that word again. For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. You know, here's the reality. They, They were not companions with God. Their heart was far from him. They were competitors to God. They were placing tradition as equal with Scripture and even above Scripture. They weren't companions with God. They were competitors to God. They were not reinforcing God's authority. They were rebelling against God's authority. They were not supporting God's glory. They were stripping God of his glory. As I said last week, their math was wrong because in their addition, it equaled subtraction. 
and their religious equation. By adding to the word of God, by adding to the law of God, they were subtracting God out of the equation. They were removing his authority. They were hypocrites. They were like whitewashed tombs. They were spiritually dead on the inside, but they appeared very righteous, very righteous on the outside. That word hypocrites, by the way, used in verse 6 was a theater term. You're familiar with it. It refers to someone playing the part on a stage. Jesus is essentially saying, you are just dramatizing the spiritual life. It ain't real. You're a spiritual performer. You're not the real thing. You're like an actor that puts a mask on his face to appear a certain way. You're religious impersonators. You're not genuine worshipers of God. In fact, he says that. In verse 7, continuing to quote Isaiah, God's word clearly said of them in Isaiah, in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Their worship was in vain, that is to say it didn't count for anything, it was futile, because instead of teaching scripture, they taught their hair-splitting legalistic regulations as if they were true doctrines. The reality was they weren't true doctrines, as verse 7 says, they were nothing more than the commandments of of men, the traditions of men, not the commandments of God. They were the commandments of men, masqueraded as God's commandments, passed down from one generation to the next. And the result of that was absolutely catastrophic. Again, back in Matthew chapter 23, earlier in that passage, Jesus says what the result of the scribes and Pharisees' ministry was. You want to see what kind of fruit it produced? You want to understand what kind of fruit legalism and hypocrisy produces? Here's what it produces. Matthew 23, verse 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte or convert. And when he becomes a proselyte or convert, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides. Woe to you. This is the blind leading the blind. And we might add to that, it was the bland leading the bland because any time that they taught these elders and these scribes, all they did was give lengthy, dry quotes of the traditions of man. When Jesus preached, it was lively, it was spirit-empowered. Jesus didn't give dry lectures like the elders of his day He preached the word of God with power because he quoted scripture after scripture after scripture after scripture. The blind leading the blind, it was the bland leading the bland. God's people in Jesus' day desperately wanted delivered. And that is when Jesus came and preached the word of God, they flocked to him because he was giving to them what they needed to nourish their souls, the very bread of life, manna from heaven. But not the tradition of the elders, not the scribes, not the Pharisees. They were making proselytes and converts sons of hell. Their salvation was one that didn't lead to salvation. It led to condemnation because they so emphasized the traditions of man. Jesus always quoted scripture. He always pointed back to a correct understanding of scripture and he does that here in verses six and seven. But after the pointed quotation, he then gives the fifth or reveals to us the fifth gripping scene, and that is a piercing condemnation. A piercing condemnation. We move here in this passage from the petty delegation, the parenthetical explanation, 
The pathetic interrogation, the pointed quotation to the piercing condemnation. Verses 8 and 9, you leave the commandment of God and you hold to the tradition of men. There is the condemnation. There's his accusation against them. Verse 9, and he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. Their worship was, as Jesus said, in vain, verse 7, or futile, because they left, verse 8, the commandment of God and they held to the tradition of man. They were really violators of God's law replacing God's commandments with their own traditions. They were not worshipers of God. They were worshipers of self and their traditions. They emphasized man-made customs over God-prescribed commandments. God's law, this is what Jesus is saying, is completely lost in their over-regulated requirements for religious living. So Jesus says in verse 9, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. You have a fine way of doing this. You know what that is? That's sanctified sarcasm. And Jesus wasn't afraid to use it because these people needed to be mocked. They themselves were mockers, actors, mocking God, leading people to hell. Jesus said, you've mocked God enough. Let me mock you. You have a fine way. You're an expert. You You elders are real experts. Not in true spirituality, not in being a true expositor of the word of God, but you're a real expert in rejecting God's word to hold to your stupid tradition. It's essentially what he was saying. You're setting aside God's rules. You're placing yourself on the throne to administer your own rules. You want to be king. This isn't just legalism. This is idolatry. You're trying to replace God. You're trying to replace tradition. Notice again back in verse 3, the tradition of the elders. Verse 5, the tradition of the elders. Verse 8, the tradition of men. Now notice verse 9, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. Your tradition is the tradition of man. Your tradition is that of the elders. My tradition is that of God's holy word. That's what Jesus is saying. And notice in verse 9 that all the verbs there are in the present tense, which conveys this is a deep issue. It's not like there was like one issue Jesus could address where he said uh, Judaism was legalistic. No, the whole system was broken. This is uh, conveying a consistent and long-standing pattern of upholding man-made traditions in the place of God's commandments. You have a fine way, present tense, of rejecting, present tense, the commandments of God in order to, present tense, establish your tradition. You're constantly rejecting God's commandments. You're constantly establishing your own tradition. You're constantly finding ways to do it. It's a broken system. We go back and we study the Reformation and we're so grateful because we hear that famous speech by Luther where Luther said that his conscience was held captive by the word of God. Luther said, I know that scripture teaches that we are justified by faith alone. The Roman Catholic Church never, to my knowledge, disrespected God's word openly. They never disrespected it openly just as the pharisees would have never openly disrespected god's word 
Instead, uh, the Roman Catholic Church, like the Pharisees, the scribes, the elders of Jesus' day, they placed tradition equal with Scripture. And so the Roman Catholic Church argued against Luther and his interpretation of Scripture, and they said, no, Luther, we are justified by faith. Scripture teaches that, but tradition teaches we are not justified by faith alone. There are other sacraments that you have to observe, and if you don't observe them, you go to hell. By the way, Luther, you're going to go to hell because all you say is your conscience is held captive by the Word of God, but what about long-standing tradition? And Luther said, I'll risk my life stand on the authority of God's word. Roman Catholic Church would have never openly criticized scripture. The scribes and Pharisees would have never openly criticized the word of God, but they were playing fast and loose with the wording. Because practically speaking, if your authority is in two sources, scripture and tradition, it's really in one source and that's tradition. Because the swing vote will always go in favor of tradition. Because man, by default, wants to rule over God. So anything in Scripture that might be questionable, you can say, yeah, Scripture is my final authority, but if Scripture and tradition are equal in authority, then tradition is always going to be the swing vote. That's why the Reformers emphasized sola scriptura, to remove all possibility of the traditions of man from creeping in by setting a precedent where it was much harder for any sort of traditionalism to dominate the church of God. And because of that, A major battle was won by the reformers, setting the church free from her legalistic exile during the medieval period under the Roman Catholic Church. Well, Jesus wants to release the people of his day from these legalistic, soul-damning standards according to the traditions of man. It was traditionalism, legalism that produced this hypocrisy And so Jesus condemns them for being false worshipers and even worse than that, for purposely placing their tradition alongside of Scripture, which inevitably led to placing tradition above Scripture. And that leads us to the final scene. We've moved from the petty delegation, the parenthetical explanation, the pathetic interrogation, the pointed quotation, the piercing condemnation, now to the provocative illustration. The provocative illustration, verses 10 through 13, Jesus is not going to end with generalities. Okay, He's going to point out a specific area in their lives in which they held the tradition of man over Scripture. So he begins, notice with me in verse 10, for Moses said, Moses said, honor your father and your mother. Moses said that. Flip back to me to, with me to uh, Matthew chapter 15, a parallel passage of this. Matthew chapter 15, same occasion. Jesus said, uh, is confronted, verse 1. They ask him, verse 2, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? You want to ask me a question? Let me ask you a question. And then he said, for God commanded, honor your father and your mother. Matthew says, 
for God commanded. Mark says, for Moses commanded. This isn't some sort of contradiction. The Holy Spirit has inspired the scriptures in such a way that you and I might have right theology. Because guess what? If Moses said it, God said it. The Ten Commandments have not been abrogated. They have not been overturned. They have not been done away with. They are still God's standard. They have always been God's standard. What kind of foolish thing is it to think that because Jesus opposed the legalism of the day, the traditions of man, that somehow he was rejecting the law of God. No, he wasn't, because here he quotes Moses, and to quote Moses is equivalent to quote God. The elders of Israel, therefore, mark it, did not merely have an issue with Moses. They had a bigger one. They had an issue with God. Because God said, through Moses, fifth commandment, notice your Bibles, honor your father and your mother. Jesus is quoting scripture again. He quoted Isaiah 29. Here he's quoting Exodus 20, verse 12, Deuteronomy 5, verse 16. Of course, there in those passages, uh, the law of God is being given in an explicit way. You're familiar with those, but even throughout the scriptures, this idea of honoring a father and mother, obeying a father and mother is found throughout, even in places maybe you wouldn't expect to find it, such as Proverbs 1.8, Hear my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching. In principle, that is supporting the fifth commandment, honor your father and your mother. Or Proverbs 6, verse 20, My son, keep your father's commandment and forsake not your mother's teaching. Bind them on your heart always. Tie them around your neck. When you walk, they will lead you. When you lie down, they will watch over you. When you awake, they will talk with you. For the commandment is a lamp and the teaching a light and the reproofs of discipline are the way of life to preserve you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. Constantly upholding the moral law of God. The fifth commandment, which says we are to honor our parents. We are to honor our father and our mother. As a matter of fact, in the last book of the Old Testament, when Israel is going to meet their judgment, God compares their disobedience to him, who is the father of heaven and earth, like that of a disobedient son. He says in Malachi 1.6, a son is supposed to honor his father and a servant his master, but if I am your father, where is my honor? Everyone knows that it's right for a child or a son to honor his parents. I'm a greater father. Why don't you honor me? Jesus constantly upheld the fifth commandment. You remember when the rich young ruler came to Jesus asking which commandments he must obey? One of the commandments Jesus quoted was the fifth commandment. Honor your father and your mother. Matthew 19, 19. And not only that, but the Apostle Paul undergirds this as the moral law of God in his epistles. He speaks directly to children in Ephesians 6. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Here he quotes it. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. He does that in the book of Ephesians. He also does that in the book of Colossians, chapter 3, verse 20. Children, obey your parents, and everything for this pleases the Lord. The Holy Spirit 
Inspired Apostle Paul is fond of adding to that commandment, honor your father and mother, words like this is pleasing to the Lord, this is right. So the testimony of Scripture is abundantly clear that anything less than honoring one's parents is sin, uh, to borrow Paul's words, it is not pleasing to the Lord and it is not right. It violates the law of God. But it also must be pointed out, look again at your Bibles at verse 10, for Moses said, we are to honor father and mother. That word honor implies more than rigid obedience. It is the Greek word tamao, it means to honor or to revere. Again, back in Isaiah chapter 29, Jesus quoted in verse 6 to say that God cares not merely about outward conformity, but inward conformity, heart devotion over lip service. So to honor your father and your mother means to revere them with an inner reverence, not merely out of reluctant obedience or obedience prompted by fear. To honor one's parents requires a deep, heartfelt love, respect, consideration. That's what it means to honor them. It goes beyond obedience, which means the fifth commandment, to honor one's parents, goes, listen to this, beyond childhood into adulthood. Into adulthood. That's what Jesus is going to get to, just hang on. But notice he goes on to quote more scripture before he gets to his point. The rest of verse 10, and furthermore, whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. Capital punishment is what the law of God called for, for the dishonoring of one's parents by a child, the death penalty. Just so you don't think I'm exaggerating this, turn back with me to Exodus chapter 21. We'll look at just... A couple of different passages quickly and somewhat in passing, but you'll get the point because the Bible is pretty clear about this. Exodus 21, just look at verse 16. Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him, shall be put to death. Skip up to verse 15. Whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. Verse 16 speaks about stealing a slave. We know the evils of slavery. We know the evils of theft. Of course, that'd be equivalent to capital punishment. But the law of God said, you hit your father or mother, you deserve capital punishment as well. Verse 17 goes deeper. Whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. You curse your mom or your dad, The law of God says that's worthy of death. That is worthy of the death penalty. Leviticus chapter 20 speaks about this. Again, Leviticus chapter 20, verse 9, for anyone who curses his father or his mother shall surely be put to death, shall surely be put to death. He has cursed his father or his mother His blood is upon him. His blood is upon him. His own blood that caused his own death is upon him because he cursed his parents. He cursed his parents. Maybe one more. uh, Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse number 18. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and though they discipline him, he will not listen to them, 
Then his father and his mother shall take hold of him, bring him out to the elders of his city at the gate of the place where he lives. They shall say to the elders of his city, This our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones. So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and all Israel shall hear and fear. The principles of God's word likely were very rarely applied in that extreme case. Deuteronomy 21 is speaking obviously about an adult son that is just hell-bent in rebellion. He's uncontrollable, untamable, and the only way to purge that evil from the society is to stone him to death. An extreme case, but there are times in which God takes matters into his own hands. Let me give you a principle. Proverbs 30, verse 17, and this used to always strike fear in my heart when I was a kid. The eye that mocks a father and scorns to obey a mother will be picked out by the ravens of the valley and eaten by the vultures. Wow. All right, maybe you won't be stoned at the city gate, but God will find a way to judge you for dishonoring your parents. Now, please don't miss what Jesus is saying here. They had put a fence around God's law, the oral traditions. That was their fence. Jesus is drawing a line in the sand. And now he's putting up a fence around their traditions. (laughs) They put up offensive traditions to keep God's law out. Jesus is putting God's law up as a fence to keep their traditions out. Implicit in the command to honor one's parents, don't miss this, is a willingness to love and revere them so much that when they get older, out of gratitude, you'll want to give back to them. Jesus is not speaking to children here. When he says honor your father and mother, he's speaking to adults. This honoring a father and mother, it may come in financial help, physical care, But the scribes and Pharisees took a clear teaching of Scripture. Could we be any clearer? Deuteronomy, Exodus, Leviticus, Proverbs. Honor your father and mother. Here's the penalty if you don't. They took a clear teaching of Scripture, listen to this, and they found a way to circumvent it by means of a legalistic loophole. That's what they did. R.C. Sproul in his commentary helpfully points out three types of legalism found in this passage. Behind the passage is um, the outworking of legalism, which is a works-based salvation, the idea that one is justified in God, in God's sight through obedience to the law. That's what's behind all of this, right? That's what all this legalism and hypocrisy leads to, generally speaking. But a second type of legalism elevates the tradition of men over the clear law of God and binds the consciences of God's people. That was happening here with the cleanliness laws. It happens in our own day when... Christians suffer from bad guilt. There's good guilt and bad guilt. Good guilt is being convicted by what God's law says. Bad guilt is being convicted about something someone says that you should do when Scripture never says you have to do it. That's binding a conscience. Bad guilt is feeling guilty over violating some extra-biblical human standard that some usually religious official or teacher says you must do. Better to disobey him and obey the Word of God. God will take care of that person. You obey scripture. That's legalism. But the third type of legalism is brought out by Jesus here. 
And this is a sneaky way to circumvent God's law, listen to this, disguised by obeying a portion of the strict letter of God's law elsewhere, but then avoiding the spirit of God's law in the other place. Jesus is going to show this often happens when a person overemphasizes a command of God, overemphasizes a command of God, causing an unnecessary and man-created conflict with another one of God's laws and then using that false conflict as a means to bypass the harder commandment and submit to the easier one in order to look more holy. That's what they did. They raised a false conflict between vow-taking, honoring vows, and that of honoring parents. Notice in verse 11, you say, If a man tells his father or mother, whatever you have been gained from me is Corban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother. Thus making void the word of God. This is specific. Let me give you another example from um, Jewish history. As you well know, Israel was prohibited from traveling a certain distance on the Sabbath. But the rabbis taught that one could hide personal items at various spots along the route they planned to travel on the Sabbath to go where they wanted to go, and they could still look holy. They wouldn't be violating the law, and this is how it worked. If you placed a personal item on a piece of land, then that technically established it as a place of temporary residence. So that a person could travel from one temporary residence to the next as far as he wanted to go, as long as he wanted to go, as long as those personal items were staggered. And the distance between each personal item or temporary residence wasn't longer than a Sabbath day's journey. Then he wasn't violating the law of God. It is amazing that when you study all of the things that made the scribes and Pharisees legalistic, it always went back to the Sabbath. They always wanted to police what you did on the Sabbath. And this is the type of hypocrisy was going on in their lives. They wanted to try to tell you what to do, but they did these sorts of things. It's hypocrisy. But in this text, Jesus speaks about them laying aside the fifth commandment in verse 10, something God said through Moses in order to um, do what they wanted to do. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother whatever you have would have gained from me as Corban that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father and mother. In other words, the scribes and Pharisees were telling adult children still living, who had parents still living, that they could pit one law of God against another to avoid supporting and caring for their parents. So here's how it worked. If a son had something, usually money, that was needed by one of his parents, all he had to do was declare over that money Corban. And that amounted to a a binding vow. They couldn't be broken without violating God's prescriptions regarding oath-taking. Another portion of scripture. That word Corban is a transliteration, if you can follow this, a transliteration of the Greek transliteration of the Hebrew transliteration of the word Corbain. A transliteration is simply a made-up word that sounds like the original. Hebrew is Corbain, the Greek is Corban, and the English is Corban. So we don't have to guess the meaning. Corban means Corban. What does that mean? Well, it appears 80 times in the Old Testament. But most of Mark's readers were Gentiles, so he gives a simple definition. Notice in verse 11, 
Whatever you would have gained from me is Corban. Here it is. That is, Mark says, given to God. It was a gift to God. The word gift here is doron. That's a Greek word in the Greek Septuagint, frequently seen in Leviticus and Numbers. It refers to a sacrificial offering. It's a sacrificial offering to God in the form of a vow. That's what it meant to pronounce Corban over your money. This is really an example of deferred giving. We see this even in our own culture. Someone today will will money to a a certain organization, institution, that that institution receives upon his or her death. But like today, interestingly, in the Jewish practice, it allowed one to retain rights over that money, including the proceeds or interest accrued from it until the time of their death. So if one pronounced Corbin over a certain amount of money or a piece of property, saying they were dedicating it to God, they were declaring it as divine property, it was a vow to God, and even their parents couldn't touch it. They rendered their possessions untouchable, which could otherwise have helped their parents in their sickness, in their distress, whatever. They weren't allowed to withdraw their vow lest they violate scriptural directives on vows. This was a legalistic loophole. And really it was an excuse. This is the proverbial, my dog ate my homework. Oh, mom and dad, I can't help you, sorry. I've given all my money to God. No, it was an excuse to release himself from his obligation morally to honor his parents which could mean providing for them, physically or financially. This was using another section of God's law to be a cover to avoid obeying another section of God's law. This wasn't holy, this was heartless. This wasn't lawful, it was lawless. This wasn't demonstrating devotion to God, although it appeared that way, really spiritual. It was avoiding devotion to parents. Jesus is telling them that Listen, by encouraging such a practice, you're endorsing lawlessness. One declares Corban. And when you allow them to do that, notice verse 12, Jesus says, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother. Son said to his parents in the time of need, I can't honor you. I'd really like to. But I've given all my money to God. And I can't. Or maybe, in some cases, uh, a guy has genuine guilt. I made a vow to God, it was a foolish vow. He goes to the scribes, look, can can I take this vow back? Can we do anything? My parents are dying. The scribes say, nope, you've already given that money to God. That money's going to the temple. Do not give a dime to your parents. It's interesting, isn't it? It was always about them. Scribes and Pharisees were obsessed with money. They were obsessed with what they looked like and what they could get. It's always the mark of a false teacher, always. Sad thing is, you pronounce Corbin over something, you could use it for yourself, you just couldn't use it for your parents. How selfish. What was left over at your death, that would be given to God. And that's usually how it works. Now thankfully, about 200 years after Jesus A section of the Mishnah discussed this conflict between children and parents because apparently this tradition of making a binding vow, pronouncing Corban, not being able to help your parents was actually ripping the Jewish society apart. 200 years after Jesus, there's a a section in the Mishnah entitled the Nderim. I won't read it to you this morning. I don't want to bore you. But 
In summary form, the rabbinical consensus was, this is such an issue that we have to begin to give precedence to the fifth commandment. Give precedence to the fifth commandment over a vow so that a man can be released from his vow and help his ailing parents. But as stated earlier, this wasn't the consensus in Jesus' day. The scribes and Pharisees essentially said, let the parents die, you keep your money so that we can get it when it goes to the temple. You see, the religious elite created an unnecessary tension between God's commandments This sort of man-made conflict between honoring vows and honoring one's parents didn't take into account that although making vows and oaths are biblical and can honor the Lord, you can also make some really foolish vows, can't you? Bible never promotes foolish vow-taking. I tell my kids all the time, it's never right to do a wrong in order to do a right. That's wonky ethics. That's situational ethics that's ethics according to what man wants to do instead of what God clearly commands and the tradition of the elders taught that it was more right to keep a vow even if it produced the wrong conclusion of dishonoring parents leaving them potentially dead and the flip side was it was wrong to go back on a vow in order to honor your parents and of course it could have all been avoided if foolish vows weren't taken in the first place and that's the point The problem was not vow-taking. The problem was rotten hearts, making vows out of wrong heart motives. The vows did not make them dirty. Their hearts were already dirty. Notice verse 14. He called the people to himself and he said, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. The thing that comes out of a person or what defile him. When he had entered the house and left, his people, the disciples asked him about the parable. He said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? Since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled, thus he declared all foods clean. What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, like pronouncing Corbin, in order to avoid taking care of your parents. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. Foolish vow-taking, prideful, arrogant, circumventing of God's law to look holy when when you're not honoring your parents, evil thoughts, theft, taking money that's not yours, murdering your parents, slandering others that don't do what you do because you're more holy and you know how to work around the law of God legalism ethics like that always get wonky when man's law is a competitor with scripture in that nadarim the mishnah it gives a situation in nadarim 5.6 of the moral crisis in judaism for their hypocritical endorsement of circumventing god's true law for their traditions regarding this very thing it speaks of a man who made a vow of his property to God, thus lawfully preventing his father to step foot on his property. Essentially broke his relationship with his father. But the problem was is that this unfaithful son was holding his own son's wedding and he wanted his dad, the son's grandfather, to attend. So in order to legally, illegally allow his father onto the property, he came up with a way to do this. He made this property, property a, a temporary vow to a friend of his. That way the friend can invite his father over to attend the wedding. 
But a problem ensued when the friend turned around and vowed that property back to God again, thus barring the father from attending the wedding. Such legalism was confusing and it left a mess for the rabbis to sort through because they wouldn't follow the word of God. Here's an idea, follow the word of God. Get rid of your traditionalism. Get rid of your opinions. Get rid of what you want. Get rid of what your standard for holiness is. Follow the law of God. In fact, verse 12, notice that language. You no longer permit him to do anything for his father and mother. There is a little bit of evidence that suggests there were actually scribal courts that were set up. You would have to in a society that was that chaotic. Parents dying, vows being taken foolishly. A son goes to a scribal court. What can we do? How can I be released from this vow? Sorry, you made a vow. You break that vow, you violate scripture. What about honoring father and mother? Doesn't matter, you made the vow. Human courts that don't take into account a right understanding of God's law have no place in making decisions, but that's what was happening in the Jewish society. That vow must remain and be honored even if parents are dishonored. They were all about the letter of the law cared nothing about the spirit of the law. An honorable court would clearly distinguish between vows that honored God and dishonored him. A vow that directly dishonored one's parents could in no way honor God. That would be a foolish vow that God would forgive. But dishonoring parents is a grievesome sin. But Jesus isn't finished. Notice verse 13. Thus, in all of this, You are making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and many such things you do. He caps off his rebuke of the scribes and Pharisees by making a revealing statement. Notice the progression. Back in verse 8, he says, you leave the commandment of God. All right, well, is is it really that bad to leave a commandment of God? We're all kind of guilty of that, right? We leave a commandment of God, we disobey God. All right, here's the progression. Verse 9, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God. This is not, uh, I didn't really know what I was doing. I left the commandment of God. I confessed my sin. No, your eyes are wide open. You've not just left it. You've rejected it. Progression, you left it. You rejected it. Now verse 13, you've made void the word of God. You are guilty of nixing the word of God by your legalism. You, this is what Jesus is saying, you have removed the binding validity, legitimacy, and authority of the very word of God by bypassing the fifth commandment. In fact, he uses a strong word here. Akurao. Akurao means to annul or to repeal. You void the word of God. You repeal the word of God. That's court language. That's legal terminology. They're repealing God's law for their own. In fact, um, Paul uses that same word in Galatians 3, verse 17. Paul says, this is what I mean. The law, that is Mosaic law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul, repeal, akarao, a covenant previously ratified by God. What was that covenant? The covenant God made with Abraham. 
Did Abraham do anything to earn his righteousness? No. Romans 4 is clear. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Paul says here, look, the Mosaic law, whatever it does, does not repeal. It doesn't annul the grace of God. But in Jesus' day, they had forgotten the gracious covenant God made with Abraham. They annulled it. And they held to works-based salvation. They wouldn't have put it in those words, but that's what they were doing. They were teaching that salvation included works. And what's worse, they did it by endorsing their tradition over God's word. They got themselves in this bind through their legalistic system. So they had to find legalistic loopholes because if your salvation is contingent upon what you do, what happens when you violate one section of the law of God? And the only way to not violate it is to violate another section of the law of God. Well, that's your legalism. You have to find loopholes to circumvent it. That's what they did. In fact, Jesus says, notice the end of verse 13, and many such things you do. (laughs) Jesus is saying, you would think this would be enough. You violate the fifth commandment constantly and encourage other people to do it. That's just the beginning. Many such things you do. Present tense. Long-standing tradition. Many things you do. Poieo, continuing to do. A continuous matter of invalidating the law of God. A continuous matter of repealing his legislation for their own. It was a basic spiritual commodity in Judaism to enthrone tradition and dethrone scripture. In fact, one rabbi said, and I quote, there are 10 parts of hypocrisy in the world, nine at Jerusalem and one in the whole world. Because the courts of man were running out over the courts of God. What do we say to this? Uh, What do we say to legalism in the church today? What do we say to those who want to hold you to their standard of holiness? Which I guarantee you, if you put a magnifying glass over their life, you'd find a lot of hypocrisy. What do we say? Well, let's say what Paul said. Turn with me to Philippians chapter three. Paul says, you wanna talk about circumcision? Listen, verse two, look out for those dogs, those evil workers, those who mutilate the flesh, those who say you need to be circumcised to enter the kingdom of God. You need to have some work attached to your faith. This is bold, verse three, for we are the circumcision. Because we worship by the Spirit of God and we glory in Christ Jesus and we put no confidence in the flesh. We've been set apart. We've been circumcised. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Paul says you want to be competitive about um, outward obedience? Okay, fine. Here's my resume. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, as the law of Pharisee, as the zeal of persecutor of the church, as the righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. I'll give it all up. Indeed, I count everything loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish or dung, manure, in order that I may gain Christ, may be found of him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. 
that I may know him, the power of his resurrection, may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. If there's any means possible, it will only come through Christ, Paul's saying. If there's any means possible of attaining to the resurrection of the dead, it comes by Christ's righteousness clothing me. Not my obedience, not my tradition, not my pedigree, not even my obedience to the moral law of God. Even that can't save. Much less some man-made standard that some foolish person has made up and tried to pin on my conscience. Luther said, my conscience will not be held captive. Do not touch my conscience. I will be held captive by the word of God. Good news is, is that God can forgive even hypocrisy. Isaiah says that even all of our righteousness is as filthy rags. It can be forgiven. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He'll take our filthy, legalistic, hypocritical, righteous rags, he'll strip them off, and he'll place his righteousness upon us when we recognize there's nothing we can do to earn or achieve our salvation. Salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. As I said, we're not against tradition. We are for tradition. We're against traditionalism. We're not against the Bible. We're for the Bible, but we're not for biblicism. We believe that we can understand the word of God and that there have been people throughout history who have given illumination to the word of God by their spiritual gifts. We're not operating by ourselves because when you operate by yourself, that will create your own system of legalism. You need the accountability of theological orthodoxy throughout history. That's where the confessions are so helpful. We are not against the moral law of God. Let me be clear on that. Jesus didn't abrogate it. Jesus didn't annul it. Jesus didn't overturn it. It wasn't mean old God in the Old Testament, obey Moses, nice, new, gracious God in the New Testament, do whatever you want. Just as dangerous as legalism is, is also antinomianism. The only way that you can really know that you are being sanctified and pursuing holiness as God prescribed it is by the measuring stick of the true law of God. It's the third use of the law. God cares about our obedience. But he cares about our obedience not as a means to attain salvation and not as a means to look superior. He cares about inward holiness that says, this is the standard of God. I'm going to obey it no matter what the consequences because God said it. I'm not obeying it to try to look good and I'm not going to add a whole bunch of other things to it to make it look like I obey it better than everyone else. Listen to me very clearly. That will destroy a church quicker than anything else. You walk in and act like you have the answer to everything and you are the best Christian will destroy the culture of a church. God likes a humble and a contrite heart that is bowed before King Jesus and in humility quietly obeys the law of God and lets the Spirit of God sanctify him. People will see that spirituality. You won't have to talk about it. They'll see it. They'll know it. They'll know you're one of Christ's. And the Lord will use you in a much greater way than if you try to control people or try to look more spiritual than other people through some system of legalism. Legalism is alive and well today. We have to guard against it. Being gracious, being forgiving, being gentle, understanding that we're all sinners, we're all in need of God's grace. And none of us would have salvation 
if it wasn't for his mercy and snatching us from the flames of hell, making us one of his. We can't earn his favor. Christ earned all of the favor we would need through his life and through his death. Praise God for that. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for truth of your word, so convicting because, Lord, we know that as we look at our hearts, we, we know there's hypocrisy there. It's hard to free yourself entirely from hypocrisy. But Lord, we genuinely want you to root that out of our hearts. We want you to root that sort of legalism out. We want to be a people that is marked by humility and gentleness and peace and joy. We want to be a people that exalt Christ and exalt in his glory. Lord, we pray that the gospel would always be supreme in this church, that this pulpit would freely and clearly proclaim the gospel, also that it would proclaim the law of God. We are to preach the true law of God, not as a means of salvation, but as the standard a standard that you require your people now and dwelt by the Holy Spirit to follow. So we pray that you would help us to do that for your honor and for your glory. Lord, bless us now as we sing this hymn of response and have our benediction. Lord, may these words be etched upon our hearts that we read from your word and study today from Mark 7. We pray these things in Jesus' name. I hope this sermon from God's Word has ministered to your soul. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, www.christreformedcc.com. Also, for access to more sermons, articles, and a podcast I host entitled Today in Church History, you can visit www.pastorandrewsmith.com.